good morning, Southbridge family. Glad that you're here today. Good morning, guests. We're thankful for you. If you are a guest today, if you wouldn't mind in your worship program, we have a couple cards today. One is a prayer guide that goes with the series that we're starting today. The other one's what we call a connection card. And so if you want to pull out that connection card, if you begin filling that out, that'd be great. And if you turn it on at the first time guest uh, kiosk on your way out, We've got a gift that we want to give you, but we also are going to make a donation to a ministry that rescues people out of human trafficking because you filled that card out. So you can have an impact on somebody's life today by filling that card out. And then also, maybe today's not your first time, maybe it's your second time. If today's your second time as a guest, would you mind filling that card out for us as well? Drop it in the offering box on your way out. Tell us why in the world would you come back? I'm just kidding. Uh, but if you'd tell us uh, that you were here today, that'd be wonderful. And uh, maybe if you want to tell us why you came back, that, that's great too. We'd love to be able to pray for you, help you in any way we can with helping you find a church. That's one of the reasons why we do what we're going to do next week. If you look at the program, the worship program, you'll find out we've got this blue tent. Everything happens under the blue tent. Volunteer stuff under the blue tent, getting connected to small groups under the blue tent, all those types of things. And next week, what we're going to do under the blue tent outside the front doors on your way out is that we're going to do what we call Discovering Southbridge. Discovering Southbridge is for people that are newer to the church. I'd love to meet you if I haven't met you yet. Maybe you've been coming for six months and I haven't met you yet. But if you've been coming for a little while and we haven't met, I'd love to get to know you. But really, it's designed to try and help you find the church for you, whether this is the church for you or we can point you to another church that uh, gets you plugged into the body of Christ and accomplishing his mission as fast as possible. And so we want to be able to do that. So if you have questions about Southbridge, you want to ask next week under the blue tent, I'll be out there after both services and you can come out there and, and meet me. And Lord willing, my wife will be out there with us as well. And that's really the benefit of uh, getting to talk to her. And, uh, how do you tolerate that guy? But anyway, um, we'd love to have you come out there. I'd love to meet you and be able to talk with you a little bit about our church, a church that exists to connect people to Jesus for life change, which is our hope for this morning as well. And today what we're going to do is begin a new series on prayer. And before we do that, I'm going to pray. So let's pray as we open up God's word uh, that God would open our hearts to what he has for us. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we get to call you our Father, and that you are our Father, that you are a perfect Father, that you love and guide and correct and challenge and provide and protect, and that you're a Father in heaven, though, that you are different than us, and we need to hollow your name. And I pray that we would set your name apart as holy, and God, that you would accomplish your will on this earth that you would bring your kingdom to this earth through us and then ultimately your son would come back soon and that we'd be ready when he comes back and i, I pray god for provision and the lives of everyone who will hear this prayer i pray that you'd provide for them and they'd know that you're the one that's providing and and i pray god for forgiveness of sins if any of us have sins that need to be forgiven right now i pray that that wouldn't be a barrier in us hearing from your word in a moment forgive us of our sins and guide us from the evil one it's in jesus name i pray amen you know, last week we wrapped up a series that we were doing for quite a long time, about 19 months. We were in the book of Acts together. And Acts is all about, verse, chapter 1, verse 8, outlines the whole book. You will be my witnesses. And so last week we ended by talking about witnessing and gave a lesson on witnessing. At the beginning of that lesson, for those of you who are in the service on time, yes, you can feel guilty if you were not. At the beginning of that lesson, I was joking, but at the beginning of that lesson, what we did is we had these little gadgets. We did a survey. And you may remember that. I put the results to all the survey questions on my blog. You can go there. I'd love to interact with you over that if you want to email me or whatever and hear how you think this affects our church. But I want to share with you this morning the combination of both services, the summary of some of those statistics. Now, we've joked about and talked about it from periodically over the last couple of years about our favorite local sports teams. Now we have some real information about this. Let me tell you this. This actually changes people's lives. Let me tell you how. Last week, we did the first service, and I, found, I thought we had more NC State fans than we had UNC because there were more NC State fans in first service than there were UNC fans. Then the next service, there were more UNC fans in this service, the second service, than there were NC State fans. I went to lunch with my small group afterwards, and I was talking to a guy, 
and I told him that. And he was attended second service. He said, well, I've been thinking about changing to first service. And he's an NC State fan. He goes, now I know I need to go to first service. And so he was in first service this morning. So you've lost one. Those of you are, are fans there on this capacity. But if, if you want to know how it turned out, we are a house divided. We'll pop the stats up here on the screen. Overall, these are the statistics for our church. Pretty close, but NC State did win. 32.18%. That's right. Wolfpack. UNC fans, just invite a Tar Heel to come to church. And so we take them, all of them, everybody, just come as you are. 28.35% NC fans. Now, Duke, I am sorry. Look at this. And ECU, I didn't even put you on here, okay? There were only 6% of ECU fans. If you team up with the Duke fans, you can compete with the haters. But here, Duke fans, 13.79%. And so I'm sorry that you got outpaced by people who hate teams more than the people who love your team. So those, I know there's a few. Dan Parlin, who was commissioning this team today, he's a Duke fan. Jennifer Sherman, I know you're uh, a Duke fan. Jim Hendren's a Duke fan. So that probably about summarizes how many we have in our church. And... Uh, <laughs> We were thankful for you to come, but uh, continue to come, please. Uh, we had more haters than we had Duke fans, and you can see how it worked out as an overall thing, and these are utterly, eternally meaningless statistics. <laughs> the rest of them matter, though, in our spiritual lives, and will matter for eternity, and so I want to give you some data on some of the more significant questions we asked, and there were several we asked, but the one I want to talk about today is this. What is your greatest spiritual struggle? And there were multiple responses. I gave the two highest responses here. Almost 25% of people said, sin in my life. And so that I just want to say to you, if sin is the main spiritual struggle in your life, one thing is this, God always takes you back with open arms. You turn to him, you can turn to him at any moment. See the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, you can see that as a picture of our heavenly father and how he runs to us and wants to take us back. And he'll forgive you and walking in the spirit is moment by moment. You can be out of the spirit one moment, you take another step, you pray, we get back in the spirit, repent, turn of your sins. Some of you are trapped in besetting sins or sins that, that, that you keep going back to the same sin and whether that's you know your pride or it's pornography or it's it can be all kinds of different stuff um i want to challenge you we do a ministry called celebrate recovery dealing with hurts habits and hang-ups that would be a great place for you to work through some of those things also our small groups uh, any of our pastors and our church a youth pastor the worship pastor myself our shepherding pastor, anybody would love to talk with you so if we can help you and guide you in any way we want to help you with that but the majority of people said their greatest spiritual struggle were spiritual disciplines. There were a few that were like, you know, 9% this, 6% that. But 42, almost 43% of people said that spiritual disciplines were their greatest spiritual struggle. And that included Bible reading, prayer, fasting, others that you may think of as well as spiritual disciplines. And today, this series is for you. We're talking about how to pray. Teach us to pray. We're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer which we're going to look at the Matthew version. It's also found in Luke, for those of you who want to study more, Luke chapter 11. What ends up happening in Luke chapter 11 is the disciples go to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. And then Jesus gives the prayer that we're going to look at over the next five weeks. And we're going to be looking at prayer. What is prayer? Well, you can find hundreds of definitions if you read books on prayer, Google prayer, all that stuff. And most of those definitions are good. And they emphasize a certain element of prayer. But if you boil it all down, all the quotes you see about prayer, all the definitions on prayer, here's what prayer is. It's communication with God for the sake of communion with God. It's possible to communicate information and not commune, not to have your heart connect with his heart. But prayer is, at its essence, communication with God where you're talking to him and you're being quiet and silent, letting him speak to you, and your hearts are connecting with one another that you communicate for the sake of communion. And my hope for today's message and for this series as a whole over the next five weeks is at the end of it that you'll feel more comfortable praying and you'll have a greater desire to pray. And so let's get after it. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn there with me. 
Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look at specifically the first part of the Lord's Prayer. There are six petitions. We're going to talk about the first one and the initial address to give you the context for what's happening here because it's always good in the Bible to know what's going on around this. Context drives meaning. Like in real estate, maybe you've heard location, location, location. In Bible study, it's context, context, context because you can make the Bible say anything you want. But it only meant to say what it was originally intended to say. And so what's happening here in the context is that Jesus is preaching a sermon. So we can safely say this is the best sermon that's ever been preached. Jesus is preaching it. Now it's interesting. He covers a ton of topics in one sermon. It's summarized. It starts in Matthew chapter 5, ends in Matthew chapter 7. That's just a summary of everything he probably said. And what we get are a ton. If I was talking to a young preacher, I would say never try to accomplish all the stuff that gets accomplished in this. But Jesus is preaching it. So he did. He starts off, he talks about blessing. Then he talks about the mission of the church. Then he talks about the fulfillment of the law. He talks about murder. He talks about adultery. He talks about divorce. He talks about taking oaths. He talks about punishment, an eye for an eye. He talks about loving your enemies. He talks about giving. And then he talks about prayer. And we're going to jump into the message that he's, already, he's been preaching. And now he's coming to the topic of prayer. And he's teaching his disciples. This isn't for all people. This is for people who are followers of Jesus. And he's teaching them how to pray. He starts off by telling them how not to pray. If you have your Bibles, we'll start reading in verse 5. We'll read through verse 13 to get a feel for the whole thing. But in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, Jesus is the one speaking the whole time through this passage. And he says this, And when you pray, makes an assumption that if you're a follower of his, you do pray. When you pray, don't do it like this. Don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners where there's a bunch of people to be seen by men. The location is not the issue. The motivation is the issue. They want to be seen. They want to get praised. They want to get some type of people thinking they're spiritual. So I tell you the truth. They've received the reward in full. They'll get that. People will think they're spiritual. They will get the praise of other people. And that's all they're going to get. That's their reward for prayer. Because there's a reward for prayer. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into the room, into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So there's a reward for prayer. Here's how I want you to pray. I want you to connect with God. It's not about being seen by people. He's not condemning public prayer because he's about to tell us how to pray publicly. It says this in verse 7, And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words, like they're going to wear God out or they're going to flatter him. They're going to negotiate him into doing what they want him to do. Verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how, not what. It's ironic that Jesus would have just said these things, and oftentimes we take the Lord's Prayer, and it can be mindlessly repeated because we've memorized it. Our goal for the series isn't that you memorize this prayer. It's that you feel more comfortable praying as a result of the lessons we learned from this prayer because it's not what to pray. It's how to pray. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. How? On earth as it is in heaven. Perfectly. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Really talking about sins here. Forgive us our debts, not your credit card debts, your debts against God. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So this is how we should pray. He starts off by telling us how not to pray. Which is interesting. It gives us the contrast. Don't babble on. Don't ramble on. Don't think because of your many words. Don't think because of your flattery. Don't think because of your negotiation. Don't do it so you can be seen by other people. And think about how we've seen that. We see this. This isn't just like back then with Pharisees and synagogues and street corners. Have you ever been in a group? Don't say yes if you're sitting by the person. Have you ever been in a group and you sense the person praying is praying to the people listening? 
not to the one that you're talking to? Jesus said, don't do that. You ever heard, or maybe you've done on your own, you babble on. In that time, Greeks would oftentimes pile up titles of God to try and get his attention. Almighty, holy, sovereign, majestic, and all these things. It's almost like flattery to get God's attention. He says, no, no, don't do that. We hear people sometimes now, they just babble on, babble on, just talking. Sometimes even they don't make any sense. They're just talking. Buddhists, what they do is they spin a wheel, one of the ways they pray, and they think that every time the wheel has got written prayers on it, every time the wheel goes around, a prayer goes up to God. Catholics, what they'll do is they'll burn can- candles, thinking as long as the candle's burning, it's ascending to God. It's a continuous repetition of the prayer. You've got the rosary beads, they keep repeating the same prayer. And we've all done it before, where we've mindlessly come and prayed something without thinking about what we're praying about. You ever done this? Oh, thank you for this food. Oh, I'm not eating. I have. Jesus says, don't do that. That's not how you pray. Pagans in this time, the way that they would pray is that they would come before God or one of their gods because they had many, a God for this circumstance, a God for that situation, like a lot of people do today. And say, remember this sacrifice? Remember how I did this? I gave that. I went here. I didn't do that. Now I want you to do something as a negotiation with God. We've probably all done that. Jesus saying, don't pray like that. Those are all the negative ways to pray. This is how I want you to pray. This then is the pattern the method, the, the format for prayer. This isn't something for you just to mindlessly repeat. Don't fall into the trap of thinking this is a magical prayer here. No, this is the way to pray. And this prayer here is so crucial. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, this prayer is not just the pattern of prayer. He says, I've got it on the screen. The Lord's Prayer is not merely the pattern prayer, although it is that. It's the way Christians must pray. It's the essence of prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about prayer in general, not just the Lord's Prayer. In his book that's on the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're studying here, says this, Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face to God. Not just that we're relating information, that we're communing. So we communicate, here's how, so that we would commune with God. And we've got this prayer here, it's really simple. It's actually easy to memorize because it's so simple. But think about the structure. You can outline this prayer lots of ways, but what you have in the very basic structure of this prayer, we read it, verses 9 through 13, and how to pray. This is an address to God, our Father, in heaven. And then you've got six petitions. The first three petitions are all about God, his name being hallowed, his will being done, his kingdom coming. The next three petitions are all about human needs. So we've got a priority here too. Provide for us. Give us our daily bed. Forgive us our sins. Help us to forgive others. Don't guide us into protect us. So you've got provision and protection and guidance. And then you've got at the top, you've got all this stuff about God. And what is he showing us? If he's not just telling us what to pray, what is God showing us? And it's those principles, I think, that will make us more comfortable and more desirous of prayer. And the first principle is this, that prayer is relational. It's the first thing we learn from that address to God, that prayer is relational. Jesus starts off by saying, our Father. It's relational language. In fact, Father's repeated 10 times in the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6. He's stressed it. When you pray to your Father, your Father, your Father, and then he says, our Father. And that's natural for many of us. To be candid, those of us who are church people, and I'm a church people. You're church people if you've been coming to church for a couple years. If you go to church, if you go to Bible study, if you go to prayer meetings, if you've been in small groups, if you've done any of that type of gathering where people pray together, it's natural for us to hear the words, Father, at the beginning of a prayer. It's so natural that, be honest in your heart right now, when you hear someone pray something else, you wonder if that's okay. Dear Jesus, oh, are you supposed to pray to Jesus? Do you think to yourself. 
Or someone says, Almighty Sovereign One, who do you think you are with all that language? You're supposed to say Father at the beginning. But it's natural that Jesus would say Father. It's become natural for us out of enculturation, out of conditioning. Now think about why Jesus calls God Father. Jesus is, John 3, 16, the only begotten Son. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only NIV, our only begotten King James, only born Son of God. The one of a kind, unique Son of God. There's only one. It's Jesus. So it's natural that Jesus would call God Father. In fact, if you look at Jesus' prayers throughout the New Testament, every time Jesus prays, he prays to God the Father, except one. The one time is, can you guess? He's on the cross. He's about to take on the sins of the world. He's about to be separated from the Father. And so he quotes Psalm 22. And he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other time he addresses God as Father. What does it show us? It's an intimate relationship. Because prayer is relational. And what he's telling us here is how to relationally not only communicate with, but commune with God. And that's key to communication. It's possible to pass on information and not really connect with another person, isn't it? Think about text messages, emails. Sometimes you even just pass in your spouse. If you're married and you say something, somebody at work and something gets conveyed and there's no tone, there's none none of that's meant. You're just giving information. That can happen. Sometimes we pray like that. The very fact that Jesus says we are to pray our Father means that prayer is not an assignment. It's not an update time. It's not a time just to convey information. It is relational and there's meant to be communion. And anytime I meet with someone talk about relationships, I, I try to emphasize this. Sometimes I'll do uh, marital counseling or premarital counseling. When I do premarital counseling, I usually do four different sessions. And they all have to do with communication, but we cover different topics in each one. The first one, we talk about communication. Ask them to tell me their story of how they came to Christ, and then we'll get an idea of how they communicate with one another and just in general. And then we'll, we'll talk about something like finances, talk about budgeting, which is really all about communication. And then we talk about how to fight with each other, which is obviously about communication. And then we even talk about, and I always say this until last, we get real close to the wedding before we talk about this one, we talk about sex, which is also about communication. And each one is ultimately about connecting, communing with one another, because I've learned in my own dumb experiences that you can communicate without communing. I remember in my own premarital counseling, uh, my wife and I were blessed. We had a godly couple that was talking us through as we were prepared for our wedding, not just the wedding day, but how to have a, a good godly marriage they were giving us some tools on how to do this. And we had a, an issue that we were working through together as a couple. And I remember the, the husband gave us an assignment. He sent us off. said, next time we meet, I want to hear how it went. And we went to breakfast. The wife wasn't able to be there. And at the breakfast, the husband asked first Shanna, said, Shanna, who's now my wife, said, did you guys work through that, that assignment? Did you work through the issues? And she said, yes. And she answered some of the information. Then he looked at me. He said, Scott, did you work through it? I said, yes. And I started to say, she said this, and I said this, and here's the resolution. Now we're ready to move on to the next thing. We weren't ready to move on to the next thing because we had communicated information. We hadn't really connected, and he showed me that. When he looked at me, he said, Scott, I want to teach you something about communicating with your wife. So oftentimes she communicates with her eyes, not with her words. I'd like you to look at her eyes right now. And I turned and I looked at her, and she was crying. And I knew we weren't done. And what he went on to teach me in that conversation is you communicated. Facts were shared, and you were ready to go to the next thing. But you missed each other's hearts. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, man is at his highest, his greatest when he's face to face. It's heart to heart. It's possible to communicate without communing. And the goal of prayer is that you would not just relay information back and forth, that you would then connect with your creator. 
that you get to call Father. The very fact you get to call him Father shows us that it's relational. But what does it imply that Father is the title? Why Father as the relational title of God? Well, there's some implications. I want to give you some of them today. The first one is this, that your Father knows your needs. Our Heavenly Father knows our needs. Which, for any of you that are fathers, you know there's a pressure on you that you're supposed to know needs. You don't always know the needs, do you? Like, if you're honest, I'm a father. I'm in a house with five women, five or four little girls and one woman. And they all think that I know their needs. I don't know their needs most of the time. I tell my wife, if you would just text message me when you want me to bring flowers, I promise I'll bring flowers. That doesn't work though, right? I'm getting amens, but it's not, it doesn't, if it doesn't work for them, like if I had to text message you, it doesn't count. I was like, why? I still did the, even if I don't have money, I'll steal them from the neighbors, whatever. I, sorry, but anyway. Uh, I, you, I do the thing, and then I got these little girls, and they'll run around the house. They'll be exuberant. They're having fun. They're climbing on my back. We're having a great time. They leave the room, and 10 seconds later, they're in the room. I don't even know how anything could have happened so bad. They're, I'm not just like, they're not just crying or upset. They're like devastated, okay? Nasty tears, snot in the hair. It's just messy. And I'm supposed to know. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Let me tell you about your heavenly father. He's not like an earthly father. Go up to verse 8, right before this prayer started. When he's telling us how not to pray, he says, Do not be like them, the pagans, who think they're going to persuade God into or babble God into doing something. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Let me tell you this about God. He knows. The end from the beginning. He was before there was time. He wasn't, isn't, is to come. He's what theologians call omniscient. He knows everything. So he knows the hairs on your head, the Bible tells us. He knows your actions before you take them. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your words before they're on your lips. And he knows your needs. Which some people will now think to yourself, well, why am I praying? If he already knows all my needs. If you're thinking that, I've got something revolutionary for you. It might sound simple to some people, but if you were thinking, well, why do I pray if he already knows all the needs? Because you probably think that your prayer time is an update time with God. Let me give you the 411. Let me tell you the lowdown on what's happened in my life. And right now it really stinks. I could use your help. Or, man, I'd really like a raise. Or I'd really wish you'd do this. I wish you'd fix this relationship. I'd do these things. As if he doesn't know. Let me tell you something. This is why it's revolutionary. He already knows all your needs. You don't need a grocery list of, could you do this for this person, that person? This, blah, 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 blah. He knows all the stuff. What he wants is to connect with you at a heart level. It's not just so you can update him. He knows the needs. But he does want you to talk to him about the needs because he wants to hear your heart about them. He wants to know your desires. What hurts? What gets you excited? What are your dreams? And I might know that those dreams aren't the best for you, but I still want to hear them. I want, I want to talk to you about them. And maybe I'm going to show you that it's me, the one that orchestrates and puts you in. So let's talk about it. And we know that the Bible shows us that there are some needs that he's not going to meet because we don't ask. James chapter 4 and verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. So he does want you to talk to him about your needs, but it's not because he doesn't know them. Your father knows the hairs on your head. He knows your needs. Not only that, second implication is this, that your heavenly father is accessible. Sometimes we can get the mentality that God has so much to deal with, my little stuff is not that big of a deal. There's Ebola in Africa and I broke my toenail. He still cares about your toenail. And he's big enough to handle all that at the same time. You know, there's a problem of war going on in the, on the West Bank. Well, 
He cares about your fight with your kids too. He's accessible to you. It is true. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is holy, holy, holy. The angels are singing that to him now. He was and is and is to come. He is the almighty creator of heaven and earth. We can't even begin to grasp the beauty of his creation. The stars are his handiwork. And what is man that he's made them a little bit lower than the angels. And we can't even grasp these truths. But he tells you to boldly approach his throne. Because your father is the king. But it's a throne of grace. At any time, at any moment, regardless of what's happening in your life, he wants you to come to him. He's accessible. That's what it means to call him father. Another implication of calling him father is that he's a trustworthy father. And I got to pause here just because I know, um, not necessarily what the text is teaching us, but in our lives, many of us have had bad dads. None of us have had perfect dads. So none of us can truly grasp. When we think of the title father, some of us, what we do is we project upon God things that were true about our dads. Some of us, that's terrible because you had an abusive dad. You had an absent dad. You had a passive dad. You had whatever. Even if you had a good dad, he pales in comparison to who we're talking about with our heavenly father. Because he may have unintentionally at times let you down. God never lets us down. He is trustworthy. Before the beginning of time, he was. And the Bible tells us there's one thing that he can't do, or one of the things he can't do. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 8, tells us he can't lie. He keeps all of his promises. All of his promises are yes in Christ Jesus. They all come back to the gospel. It all comes back to the good news which transforms your life and brings him glory. So that means you can trust him. Which, let me flip it and say this as a question for you. How much do you pray? Because if you pray rarely or never, that might be a symptom that your issue is not spiritual disciplines. It's not that you need more structure in your life. It's not that you need some other way to fix this. It's probably a symptom that you don't really trust him. Because prayer is a sign of our dependence. So where do we go in our times of need? That shows us what we depend on. Do we go to our own strength? Do we go to our bank account? Do we go to our friends? Do we go to fill in the blank? That shows us where we depend. Oftentimes we pray little because we trust little. Those who trust much pray much. The Bible tells us that we should pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean that we're continually walking around going, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Oh, hey, how are you? Hello, you know. That means that we live a life of continual dependence upon our Father because he's a Father we can trust. Fourth implication I want to share with you about calling God Father is this, and this is probably the most important one, that you have a Father who loves you. Do you begin to grasp how loved you are? The very fact that Jesus says that we, not he, because he calls God Father all the time. That makes sense. He's God's one and only son. Why do we get to call God Father? Because this isn't Jesus' prayer, by the way. We call this the Lord's prayer. It really should be called the disciples' prayer. Jesus isn't praying here. This doesn't apply to him. If it applied to him, why is he praying? Forgive us our sins. This isn't the Lord's prayer. It's not worth fighting over because it's been called that for centuries. But it's really a prayer for the disciples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, he's preaching to the disciples. And this whole sermon is for the disciples. It's not for him. And he's telling us, as his followers, as his disciples, that we get to call God Father. The very fact that we get to call God Father is a demonstration of God's love. Because the Bible teaches us this, that you're children of wrath. That I'm a child of wrath. That we are children of the devil. We don't like to talk like that. Everybody's God's child in creation, yellow, black, and white. That's what we like. But the Bible says this. Let me read it to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As for you, 
Ephesian believers, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And what you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world, and we've all done this, and to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, and the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. So Satan's spirit is at work and all who are disobedient, mm -hmm. even deceiving them into thinking their righteousness somehow pleases God. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects, some translations, children of wrath. Jesus, when speaking in the Gospels, comes across some people who pray all the time, read the Bible all the time, are very religious, but haven't trusted him as their Savior. And he says to them, in John chapter 8, verse 44, you're like your father, the devil. <laughs> you don't think that struck a chord? But we get to call God Father, but we're children of wrath. Why is that? Ephesians chapter 1 tells us the answer to that. Ephesians chapter 1 in verses 5 and 6, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us, the one he loves. And then while we were children of wrath, while we were children of Satan, while we were still sinners, Romans chapter 5 verse 8, Christ died for us. The godly for the ungodly. See, we tend to think we're all good, pretty good, and then, no, Jesus died for us. First John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Why are we children of God? John chapter 1, verse 12, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who died for what? Our adoption. You ever known somebody who's adopted? Maybe you've been adopted or you've adopted someone. Here's something I'll teach you about adoption. It's expensive. It can cost thousands before. I'm not even talking about emotionally expensive or any of that stuff. Before you, you bring someone into your home, before you feed them, clothe them, care for them, emotionally are there for them, it costs money. Most times, thousands of dollars. The very fact that someone would take the initiative to bring someone into their family who wasn't already part of their family at great financial expense to them is a demonstration of love. And you think about what God did to adopt you and me. If it cost money, that wouldn't be a problem. He's got unlimited amounts of money. If it was time, he's got unlimited amounts of time. It cost him his son. How many of those did he have? One. His only begotten son. Now, I think about that, and I want to love like God loves. I've got four kids. And I'm pretty sure I wouldn't give any of them at this moment. You know. I wouldn't ever, so... Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, but I wouldn't ever give any of them for another person. I love them too much. I wouldn't give them so that someone else could be in my family. And God gave his one and only so that I could be his child, so that you could be his child. Amen. Do you fathom how loved you are? You've been adopted in at great expense. You have a father who loves you, and you get to now call him Father. Scholars debate about what's being said here in this passage. We know that Matthew is written in Greek, and the Greek word for father is pater. But some scholars, many scholars actually, believe that Jesus was, when he was speaking to his disciples, was actually speaking in Aramaic. In Aramaic, the word for father is Abba. It's an informal term. It's a very endearing term. It's not quite daddy. That's a little over sentimentalization, But it's papa. Papa. We get to call God Papa. See, the Bible says this in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son, his only begotten son, into your hearts. The spirit who calls out, 
Papa? Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, fear God, but you received a spirit of sonship. You're a child of the king. And by him we cry out, Papa, Father, because he gave his son for you. I was talking to a friend this past week. Who you, some of you saw when he stood up here in front of our church. He's a missionary in Panama. His name's Matt Hedspeth, and we're hanging out with Matt and Misty. And they've adopted two different children. They have one birth child, and they adopted a little boy and a little girl, and we were talking about their little girl, Rosie. And Rosie loves horses, and he had just bought her some horses, some little figurine horses that she was playing with, and he was telling me about how much she loved horses. And uh, he told me that a few months prior to that, he had actually taken her to ride a horse. And he said, she's so excited about it. It's been months now. She still said, whenever I leave the house, Daddy, thanks for taking me on the horse. So I tucked her in last night, and she said, Dad, thanks for that time when we rode the horse. It was like that gift demonstrated to her, you really love me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his only son. Do you realize how loved you are? Later in Romans chapter 8, after it talks about us having the spirit to be able to call him Abba, it says this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Everything is best for you. He's going to give you. He gave you his son. You can trust him. He loves you. He knows your needs. He's accessible to you. He's your father. What does the Bible say about him being father? Matthew seven eleven. If you then, though you are evil fathers, earthly fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He loves you. He gave you the greatest gift in his son, Jesus Christ. He's our Father. But before we get too sentimental about who God is and we want to crawl up in his lap and cuddle up next to him and pray to him, let's not forget the first petition in this prayer. You are our Father, but you are in heaven. You're different than us. And so the first petition is, hallowed be your name. Treasured, valued, sanctified, set apart, made different be your name. The first request, which means this, that prayer is not only relational, prayer is holy. Prayer is not just relational, prayer is holy. About this first petition, a couple people that have written about this prayer I've said this, J.I. Packer, who's a well-known theologian for his book, Knowing God, says this in another book on this prayer. It says, hallowed, holy, sanctified be thy name, which is the biggest and most basic request of the whole prayer. Understand it, and listen to how important it is, and make it your own, and you've unlocked the secret of both prayer and life. This is kind of an important request. John Piper says this when he's talking about a longer quote, there is something unique about the first petition, hallowed be your name. It's not just one of three, talking about the first three about God. It's, it, in this petition, we hear the specific subjective response of the human heart that God expects us to give. The hallowing, reverencing, honoring, esteeming, admiring, valuing, treasuring of God's name above all other things. This petition comes first. His name comes first. It should not only come first in our prayers, but in our lives. Piper goes on. He says, none of the other five requests tells us to pray for a specific response of the human heart. If you combine this fact with the fact that this petition comes first and that the name of God is more equivalent to his being than his will or his kingdom, kingdom or will, he says, I'm sorry. My conclusion is that this petition is the main point of the prayer and all the others are meant to service this one. So his will being done is so his name will be hallowed. His kingdom coming is so his name will be hallowed. His provision in your life gives us to stay our daily bread is so his name will be hallowed. His forgiveness of our sins, so his name will be hallowed. 
is guiding us so that we're protected from the evil one, so his name will be hallowed. So what does it mean to hallow his name? It means to treat it as different. It means to treat it as holy, as sanctified. It doesn't simply mean this, that we don't swear and we don't use his name in vain. How do we make his name holy? Well, we live a life that's holy, that sets his name apart. It's the opposite of what they did at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, they're trying to build towers to God to make a name for themselves, Genesis tells us. And they got punished. And that's how many of us live. I'm going to live my life to get the praise of these people. I'm going to live my life so that so dad can be proud of me. I'm going to live my life so my spouse will think I'm great. I'm going to live my life so I can get a spouse. I'm going to live my life so that whatever the thing is. And it's ultimately about our names. And we waste our lives doing that. This is why it's the key not only to this prayer, according to Packer, but it's the key to unlock our lives is that we're made for the glory of God. So we'd hollow his name and the way that we live our lives because he does dwell in unapproachable light. Because he is holy, holy, holy as the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's just vainly being repeated in heaven. And he has meaning that is being prayed because it's true. Because he's righteous. Because he's different. Because he is the creator, almighty creator of heaven and earth. He is beyond our comprehension. His wisdom is beyond the wealth of our knowledge. His love beyond our ability to fathom. We can't even, if you were to take a speck of dust and the amount that we can put, in our, we, that would, we wouldn't even touch the dust with all that there is to know about him. And we don't grasp that. Because if we grasp that, it would revolutionize and change the way we pray. What is it that we're to hollow? What does the passage say? Your name. Now, names are interesting to us because for most of us, names are, are labels. We say someone's name because we want to get their attention. We want them to look at us. We want to say something. So Spiro's my friend's down here. David's down here. I say the name. Andrew's down here. I say the name of people. It's a convenience thing in American culture. My wife says Scott. So I'll look. She's not saying because your name means bright light or whatever we look up in these baby books, right? Baby books always have these names, you know, the the ruler of all. So I'm going to name him that because that's a great name, whatever the thing. And we don't think about that stuff once we're functioning in daily life. But for the Hebrew, Hebrew thought was that name was essence, was a being, described character. And so what we're talking about here, we're talking about hollowing God's name. We're not just talking about hollowing words. Which is what name are we even talking about? Jehovah? Lord? Yahweh? There's lots of names in the Bible. It's not a name on a page. It's the person of God. Let me read you a couple of Psalms. It gives you the idea. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Really? We trust in a name? So if we just know the name, then we'll be all set, right? Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it. You run into a name? You run into a person, to his character, to his being. Psalm chapter 9, verse 10 says this, those who know your name will trust in you. Oh, because if we just knew his name, then we trust in him, right? No, here's why. Second part of that verse, Psalm 9, verse 10. Those who trust your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. It's because of your character. It's because of who you are. And the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses says to God, I want you to show me your glory. And God says to him, you can't handle it, you'll die. But I'll give you a glimpse. Tucks you in a cleft of a rock. And in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord appears to Moses. And he comes by him, he proclaims his name. It's interesting what God actually says to Moses, though. It's not just a name to be known. He talks about his character. Then the Lord came down in the cloud, and he stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And what does it say? And he passed by in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. 
and not letting the guilty go unpunished, it goes on to say. So how do you do that? How do you not let the guilty go unpunished, but you're abounding in love and you're gracious and you're slow to anger? It's his character. It's his essence. It's who he is. He's the Lord. Yeah, we can say he's the Lord, but what does it mean to hallow his name? It means that we treat him as Lord. So then it changes how we live. It changes how we pray. As he comes first in this petition, he comes first in our lives. And our lives become not about our glory, our fame, our name, but about spreading his glory, his fame, his name, which is what he's told us earlier in this sermon in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, when he gives them the purpose for their lives. You let your light so shine before men that people will glorify your Father in heaven. Well, that seems to contradict when he says, go hide in a closet. He's talking about your hearts. He's not talking about your location. He's saying, you don't do it so that you can be seen, so you can spread your name. You do it so that I can be seen through you. That's how you hollow my name. When you get this, it unlocks prayer, it unlocks life. Do you think about how some of us pray? The way we pray reveals we do not grasp who we're praying to. Think about some prayers that you've probably prayed, that I've prayed, that, that just show that we don't, we don't even get it. Have you ever heard somebody pray this? God, will you please be with Susie who twisted her ankle last week? Be with? He's omnipresent. You're asking him to do something he already, he's doing that, okay? You don't need to be wasting your words. Or how about this one? God, will you please remember the missionaries who visited our church? And I can't remember them, but you, know, you got it. remember? Like he was up there going, that's right. I forgot about them. (laughs) He knows everything. He knows the hairs on your head. He doesn't need to be reminded. See, our boring prayer lives are because we're bored with God because we don't grasp who he is. And our prayer lives just reveal that. And so you think about how you pray. If prayer is hard to drudgery, it's probably because you don't grasp who it is you're praying to. And he is your father, and he does love you, and he knows your needs, and he is accessible, and he can be trusted, but he is wholly other. He is otherworldly. He does dwell, 1 Timothy chapter 6, in unapproachable light. He is holy, 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 which means if you were in his presence, you would die. And so he's not our buddy. He's not our pal. Jesus isn't our homeboy. He's different than us. He is righteous and just and forgiving and loving. All simultaneously. Can you grasp that? Your head will blow up. You can't do it. It's too much. I read one author that in essence said this this week. Our dull prayer lives are an indication of our inadequate knowledge of the Almighty. See, we pray boring because we're bored with Him. We don't get it. Because when you get it, who it is you're praying to, it'll revolutionize how you pray. You can pray and be with and remember. You're going to the King and He wants to hear from you and He can do anything. You ever pray for God to do something impossible and then God does it? Some of you may have things right now you don't pray for because you think, oh, God doesn't work like that anymore. Or it'd be ridiculous. I'd feel silly praying these things. Think about who you're talking to. I remember when Shannon and I first got married, um, we didn't have any money. Like, we were negative money. We owed money to college. We were living in a place that was free. Somebody let us stay in their house and uh, let us sleep in their bed. They were out of a, on vacation, and I was working at this church. They're like, oh, the new youth pastor guy, well, they don't make any money, so he can stay at my house. And so we went and stayed there, this guy's house, but we needed a car. And so we were trying to figure out what to do with a car. I like to negotiate. I actually went and negotiated in a car, got a great price on it. Problem is, I had no money. <laughs> and so I remember I called my mentor, the guy who led me to Christ. Just He was talking to me. I talked to him about life, and we started talking about it. I said, what do you think I should do? Should I get another loan? Like, I already got the school debt loan. Should I get a loan for the car? 
And he challenged me, living by faith. He said, pray that you can buy the car for whatever it is you can afford. We didn't actually talk about dollars or what the car cost or how much I had or any of that kind of stuff. And so he didn't know what I could afford was free. And so um, he just said, you pray that. And he told me two stories in his life. He told me one story where he did that and got provided miraculous. He told me another story where he didn't do that and it cost him a bunch of money. And he said, I'm not going to ask you what you do. You just go ahead and, and, and I'm going to challenge you with that. And you go pray. And so I remember I went upstairs in the house that we were staying in. I got down on my knees next to the bed that Shannon was already sleeping in. She's like, she's early, early to bed gal. And I got down on my knees and she rolled over and saw me there. She goes, what are you doing? So I'm praying for a free car. <laughs> she grabbed the covers and literally rolled over and says, you can't pray for a free car. Like I'm being super selfish. And I was thinking, God, let's show her, you know, pray. start praying. <laughs> I'm praying. Long story short, three days later, I'm teaching in youth group, and this parent comes walking up to me afterwards and says, my wife, we're talking. We don't want this to be awkward for you in any way or anything, but we'd like to give you a car for free. <laughs> there you go. See that, Shanna? <laughs> you know what I learned at that moment, though? It's not, I'm not telling you this so you all get free cars today, okay? Just so you know. This isn't like every time I pray for a free car, there are not keys in my mailbox. That's not what happens. What God was teaching me was this, that he can do anything. And then I can trust him, and he can provide, and he will guide. And sometimes he's going to say no, because that's best. But he showed me you can do the impossible. Now, last week, it's interesting. Some of you have kids at Bridge Kids. I'll just ask you this. Did you get the email update? If they have your email, they've been sending us emails that show us what it is that our kids were taught. The reason why they do that, by the way, is so that you can then talk to your kids about the lesson to help you disciple your children. But the lesson last week was about Joshua chapter 10, where Joshua was in a battle, and he prayed, and the sun stood still. Now, some of us, we see that and we go, oh, that's a good story for the kids. Isn't that really what you think? See, that doesn't reveal anything about God. What it does is it reveals your view of God, which then manifests itself in your prayer life and the way you live. Let me tell you something. God can still do the impossible. You pray for the impossible? I don't know what it is you might possibly pray for that you're afraid to ask because you forget who you're praying to. You know what the Bible says? There's a, a story, there's a couple, and some of you are new to the Bible, and so I don't say this condescending to those of you who do know the Bible well, but there's a couple that's really popular in the Bible named Abraham and Sarah. They're infertile, and God tells them they're going to have kids. They've gotten past the point of thinking that's even a possibility, and so when God says, you're going to have a kid this time next year, Sarah laughs. And then it's interesting, if you read Genesis chapter 18, uh, what ends up happening there is that she tells God, I didn't laugh. And he goes, no, you did laugh. And it's like, you're not going to win that one, Sarah. I've just cut that out. But then... God says to Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's really a rhetorical question. In Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 27, the Lord says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Hallow my name. I'm different than you. Set me apart. Is anything too hard for me? Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Do you believe that God can do all things? they can do beyond what we could ever ask or imagine, then that should revolutionize the way that you pray. Not because you're special and that you pray some big prayer, but because of who it is that you're praying to. It's interesting in the book of James, James in the New Testament is teaching believers how to pray. And he picks a guy named Elijah from the Old Testament. He could have said, Elijah called down fire from heaven because he did. He could have said, Elijah prayed for a dead person to rise from the dead because he did. And it happened. But he chooses this illustration in James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Who's a righteous man? Somebody who lives really moral? No. Anybody who can call God Father because they've got the righteousness of Jesus Christ on them because they've been adopted into the family. They've got the righteousness of Jesus. Their sin has been forgiven. The prayer of a follower of Jesus Christ, it could say, is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. That means he was not awesome. 
Because I'm not awesome, and I don't know all of you, but you're not awesome either. He was just like us. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't. Not for three and a half years. Verse 18, again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So then what James is telling us here is that Elijah controls the rain, right? Nobody knows the one who does. And he's praying to him. And do you know what else? He can still do that. And he can still make the sun stand still. And, and, and he can still heal diseases. And, and he can still change lives because he's still doing that. You know, God was teaching me. I was praying for that car for free. He was, he was building my faith that I can ask for the impossible. One of the big things I ask for now is that God transforms lives. And one of my greatest joys is when he does it through you. And we've got this vision as a church called 10X. We want to see each of you lead 10 people to Christ over the next 10 years. One person a year. And so we say all the time, who's your one? And then God goes out and uses you. And so then I think about it, I think I want to just pour everything I can into you when you, we gather together on Sundays. And then you go out and hopefully God will use that in some way to impact somebody's life. And every once in a while somebody tells me when it happens. And I got an email this week from somebody I want to share with you. They told me I could. He was talking about meeting with his one. He says this, as we have many times in the past year and a half, I met yesterday with Alex, my coworker and my one. We've progressed from cracking open the Bible for the first time in our life to deciding recently to study Ephesians. We started reading through the first chapter of Ephesians and really took it a verse at a time. It's all, all the gospel. That's where the adoption came from. That's where he talks about you're predestined to be my family. I'm going to transform you. Ephesians 1 really is all the gospel and God's grace. At the end, I had to ask Alex if he believes Christ's story was real, that he died for the forgiveness of his sins, and if he believes, he will be granted eternal life. And he said, yes. This is the first time I've seen him confident in his eternal salvation. Alex still has a lot to learn. And it has a lot to develop in his faith, as we all do. But I feel confident that my one will be praising God in heaven with me one day. Yeah. Amen. All of heaven rejoices when that miracle takes place. Luke chapter 15. And God still does that. That's the God that you pray to. And so let me just ask you this. Do you want to pray? My hope for you in this series and in this message you'll be more comfortable praying and you'll have a desire to pray when you're done. Do you realize who you're praying to? He is your father and he loves you beyond what you can fathom. And he knows your needs and he's accessible to you and you can trust him. But he's also holy. And the very fact that he is different than you is all the reason for us to go to him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We pray your name would be known. We pray your name would be made holy in the way that we live, that we wouldn't be a disgrace to your name in the way that we live in this community. And when we do, we come to you for forgiveness. We come to you for grace. And even in our failures, I pray we would point people to you. God, will you please reveal yourself as Father to each one of us. Reveal yourself as hallowed and holy to and through each one of us. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Forgive us our sins. Provide for us our needs. God, guide us in your way, the way of everlasting life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.